Hello and welcome to Leading with James Ashton. This podcast brings together leaders from very different organisations in the worlds of business, charity, the arts and beyond. In each episode, my two guests swap stories about how they learnt to lead and their successes and failures at the top. I'm James Ashton, a journalist, conference speaker and consultant. In this episode, I go from financial to mental well-being. Paul Geddes is the outgoing chief executive of Direct Line, the £5 billion insurance group whose brands include Churchill, Privilege and Green Flag. In a decade at the wheel, Geddes has demerged the business from its former parent company, Royal Bank of Scotland, overseen a successful stock market flotation and grown the firm so that today it insures one in six cars on the road and 2.6 million homes. His background is in marketing, starting out with Procter & Gamble, then as marketing chief for retailers Comet and Argos. As the chief executive of Mind, the leading mental health charity, Paul Farmer has seen how we feel and the permission to talk about it become a mainstay of the national conversation. Contributions by Mind's president Stephen Fry to Ruby Wax and even the royal family mean that mental health has never had a higher profile. For Farmer, who has run the organisation since 2006, it has led to record income of £48 million last year, meaning he can help many more of the one in four people that experience a mental health problem every year. I began the conversation asking Paul Farmer how he has capitalised on the rise in mental health awareness. So you're right, I've been incredibly lucky to be uh, sitting in what I think is the best job in mental health uh, during a time when mental health has slowly but surely risen up the the political, the media and the society's agenda. And our, our starting point, I suppose, when I arrived at mine was to think and listen really closely to people with lived experience of mental health problems what, what do they want what do they want us to do as their organization and they kind of basically said change the world um, we try to think about well how how do you do that and the way we did that was basically to try to give them a voice and giving them a voice is done best by it's done in ones and twos by individuals talking about their own lived experience it's also done by national treasures like Stephen Fry and Ruby Wax talking about their experiences or business leaders. Um, and so we've grown, we've, we've slowly tried to turn every corner of society round so that they face mental health. Um, we've just finished a programme, for example, with um, the blue light services, um, fire, police, ambulance services, trained 3,000 people in that. So uh, 3,000 champions inside those services to to be the people who champion the cause of mental health. So the first thing we do is we equip and enable and empower people. Um, And in terms of how do we capitalise on that? Well, we as a mental health charity look across the rest of the charity sector and think, well, if one in four people experience a mental health problem, then we should be the same size as other charities, other causes who have a similar incidence rate. So the kind of organisations we look to are great charities like Macmillan, who are... I think eight times our size, but have a similar are working with a population of a similar kind of similar size, similar size of people, similar size of incidence of cancer. So we think really carefully about how are we going to build over a long period of time. So this is really this generation's task to create that platform for what we think will be 
you know, long-term change. Because there is an awesomeness to the the challenge, if you like. I mean, one in four people affected, I think, every year. And, you know, mental health closely linked to suicide, suicide, the biggest killer of, of young men and so on. So as a leader, you have to always consider that big picture. Is it ever too big? It's an enormous... We talk about the waterfront of mental health because it ranges from how do you think about equipping somebody in a school to think about their own mental health, right the way through to workplaces, right the way through to people who are in very acute states, you know, where suicide becomes the only option for them. And it's such a huge waterfront. I, I don't think it is too big because you can't, I suppose we work on the mantra that you must never leave anybody behind. So our, our we started as an, an organisation back in the 1950s and 60s, really, by campaigning for people who've been locked up in asylums. You know, they were literally out of sight and out of mind. That was totally the wrong thing for our society to do. And then when, as a result of our campaigning work, those asylums started to close, our local organisations started to set up to support those people who are at their most vulnerable when they were leaving those asylums. So we've always been here for the people who are most vulnerable. And of, of course, I think society is always touched by the tragedy of suicide and roughly 6,000 suicides a year in the UK. So there are too many families who are touched by that. And so that's, of course, that's always going to be a core part of our work. But we also have to think all the way back to why why did somebody choose to take their own life? Is it because they didn't know what was going on to them? Is it because they didn't have the right kind of help and support? Is it because the right services weren't in place? So ultimately, if we're going to solve those really fundamentally challenging issues in our society, we have to think about the whole piece. And with that voice you talked about, it's very important that Mind talks to those people at all levels and provides that voice. I mean, there are a lot of voices now there, which is which I think is great for the cause, heads together with the royal family yeah. and, you know, time to talk and time to change and so on. Do you ever worry as a leader that you risk, Mind risks losing the lead in the conversation, if you like? Or does it really not matter as long as people are feeling better and getting better? I, I, I think we take a quite a kind of distributive leadership model. So we know that we're not going to be, we shouldn't be the only organisation that has a voice in this space. Uh, actually, that's not, I don't think that's good for us as an organisation. I actually don't think it's good for society. I think there has to be a range of options, a range of choices for people. Our kind of key concern is often to make sure that the public, people who are listening and thinking about these issues, don't receive confusing and conflicting messages. So we set up Time to Change, and it's still a part of us and our colleagues at Rethink Mental Illness, because uh, we wanted to tackle stigma, and we needed a big campaign that was going to be here for a long time, that was going to nibble away at public attitude. We're a partner in the Heads Together campaign. Again, I mean, absolutely extraordinary. We've seen this extraordinary kind of catalytic effect of the royal involvement. But the key thing is that the messages are consistent. So what you'll hear in these in these different campaigns are broadly speaking consistent messages. Things like it's really important to talk about it. Things like it's really important to go and yeah. get help when you can. So we're, I suppose, in a way, maybe we're the conductor of the orchestra is perhaps sometimes the way that we see our role. But also because we are the best-known mental health charity, people look to us to lead the sector and lead lead the direction yeah. of travel. Yeah. So we're now thinking about, well, okay, here's this new exciting platform for mental health. Where do we need to go next? Mm. And some of the places we need to go next include tackling true discrimination in terms of people's experiences of mental health problems and really going to the root, some of the root causes of poor mental health, but also thinking about how do we systematise some of the pioneering work we've already done in yeah. schools or workplaces yeah. so that it's not just 
in isolated places, it's everyone who gets these messages. Yeah. Paul Geddes, um, as CEO of Direct Line, I don't think you want insurance to have a, such a prominent place in the national debate. Maybe you'll tell me otherwise. But what has been, over the 10 years you've led the company, what has been the big challenge for you? Well, the context of our, uh, I guess, birth as a separate company was we came out of RBS at a time of some trouble for RBS. And that also coincided with what's known as the whiplash epidemic, which was the nature of our market changed quite a lot with uh, the cost of insurance not being as much about the paint and the parts and the physical car, but much more about whiplash and soft tissue damage, which sounds very dry. But actually, in practice, it meant that our company was not only had to float out of uh, RBS, it, it could have been a, it could have been a trade sale, it could have been private equity, but we were lucky enough to pull off an IPO, which, which meant that we kept as much of the people and and the organisation as possible. And we had to do that against the backdrop of the EU demanding a timescale for us doing that and a business that when I took it over was uh, was loss making. So, you know, a, a, quite a challenging set of conditions, actually perfect conditions to drive change because the status quo wasn't going to work. So, you know, I, the, the, the start of when I came in at 2009, a loss making company, part of a bank with some challenges to get that to, to an IPO in 2012 and, and subsequently to do well has been a a great journey and you know a lot of people's very very hard work to get it there mm. and seen as we've started with mind and talking about mental health mm. and so on i guess you know when you came in and took over that division within rbs there must have been something that you had to do to address uh, morale culture i mean this was a this was a business kind of hidden within rbs which effectively had been through well a corporate heart attack if you like yeah I, the, the little framework which i think loads of people use so I, I can't claim any credit for it but is to be respectful of the past searingly accurate about the current and optimistic about the future and really that stood us in good stead because you know these businesses you know direct line itself was the global pioneer in, in taking insurance direct and therefore, there's a lot of residual pride in that. And a lot of around the world, Direct Line's still a famous insurer for creating an industry. Um, accuracy about the past, you know, we were losing money. We were a declining business. We had lost some of the core skills and in insurance and that. But I also genuinely believe that if we made the changes we need to make, we could be a great standalone business that was a great business in Britain that could be a great business for customers and shareholders. And I never lost, lost a sense that if we did all the right inputs, the right outcomes would, 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 would come about. And there were quite a few quarters when it didn't happen and we had to hold our nerve. But ultimately, the results did come through and that then gave us a platform to be able to IPO and create a, a, a new stand, standalone British business. But, you know, there were some, there were some moments on the way. But I think the people were not just, you know, people have been a huge part of our whole narrative. And, and you know, a few weeks ago, we got number three in the Sunday Times Best Companies to Work For uh, survey. And we, we've we we've now got 80, over 80% of our staff are in the highly engaged box that are real advocates for the business. So those metrics have gone up. And I think that's directly, you can see the linkage between that and our growth in our kind of customers and you can see that in our financial results so for me these are all causal and the people have been a huge part of the journey I think getting them to f care about the business is a huge part and feel ownership of the business and things like allowing them to have free shares paying them really well so we give our lowest paid workers the biggest pay rises having ideas schemes where I've given one of my colleagues a £50,000 check for a brilliant idea they had that made the company millions uh, we have employee representative bodies mm. which are elected so we, we put an, a, a huge amount of stuff but really at the heart of it is to get people to care about a 11,000 business much easier than pe getting people to care about 170,000 people business and making it feel like it's their own and actually that's the whole tone we have I'm trying to get this to be a family business the family business where people 
do share their ideas and do care about the outcomes and don't step over the trash and spend money like it's their own um, and treat colleagues like their family, right? That's kind of the ethos which we try to create. Because, I mean, there is a, a perception that, you know, insurance, oh, it's very, very financial, that it's that it's about the calculation. It's insuring the right people um, for the right premium and then hoping at the end of the day there's enough left to release from reserves and, and hand back to shareholders and so on. But actually, as you say, the business is the people and it's your job as a leader to get the best out of them. And then actually at the consumer face although we don't spend you know days and weeks thinking about our insurance policies you do cover one in six cars on the road if something goes wrong there you you've got to get involved if people's houses get flooded it's a very very human no, you're completely right james i mean the the i guess one of the beliefs coming in uh, that i challenged was that this was a commodity that that actually it's just like electricity and gas and and you know, electricity and gas really are commodities. When you want to go into a room, you don't go, oh, well, that's fantastic. That's, uh, you know, that's SSE's electricity. I really like the look of that. You know, whereas insurance genuinely is important and good good versus bad insurance is, is meaningfully different. I've I've had a flood myself. Uh, if you have a car accident, you really do care who you're with and what they what they then do when you have an accident. And and the whole direct line repositioning is to say, okay, let's make better insurance. Yeah. This is my background as a Procter & Gamble trained marketeer where the first job is make your product better. And we've made direct line better, we think, in almost every single way, such that if you have a car accident today, you'd be genuinely better off if you were direct line. Um, you know, we've done the same with Green Flag, and we've done the same with Churchill and Privilege, but but really, direct line's our biggest story. And a lot of that is a people thing. You know, I think if you were flooded, I remember I remember making the call, and really, you just crave someone to say, I'm really sorry, that is, that is really bad news. We're going to get this sorted out. It'll be fine. Because at that stage, your life falls apart. You you know, you, you don't know where you're going to be living. Your pets probably can't go to where you, you know, where you're going to live and where you're, what's going to happen to your kids and schools. And it's just your life is thrown in the end. That's the time when you actually need a human being the other end with all those empathy skills. So, And assume you're calling your own call centre then? Uh, yeah, well, actually, yes, uh, it was my own call centre. Um, and it's one of those ones I think you have to use your own products. Um, I, I probably haven't uh, been the best risk for, for, for that. Uh, Did the line go quiet when that you said you told them what your no, name was? No, I mean, there's a little bit. I, what I've been assiduous about is please don't give me any any different outcome in terms of don't pay things which you wouldn't pay a normal customer it's natural they'll want to put on their best thing for the boss i suppose yeah paul farmer how do you in the same way that, that paul is insured with with his company how do you make sure how do you almost do that mystery shopper with your organization because I, we should say there's i think you have 600 people in hq or the sort of the group and then there's a federated structure so you have uh, many thousand i don't know are they paid or some volunteers but people doing great works in mental health all over the country under the mind banner yeah so um so we have a we're a federated charity uh in common with uh charities like citizens advice bureau uh samaritans are also federated for example scouts guides very popular model in the 50s and 60s in business speak it's a franchise so uh, those organizations af- affiliate to us and there's a, a structured agreement around that and they are our eyes and ears on the ground, around about 130 organisations supporting about half a million people every year with about 2,000 staff and about 4,500 volunteers. So our reputation is dependent on both what we do nationally but also what we do 
what we do locally is hugely important. First of all, I think in the digital era, uh, people are much clearer about coming to you and telling you about what they think about your organisation. I think that's a that's a, a, a nature of being a leader in the digital era that people give you immediate feedback about what's going on, and we always take that incredibly seriously and you know understand what's going on for people. Um, secondly, I, I part of part of my job, I believe, as a leader, is to get out there and listen to what people are telling us. So. Whenever I go out to a local mind, I'll always always spend a bit of time in a service that 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 local mind is running, and just listen to the people um, uh, telling us about their that the, the issues that they. Uh, that, that that are big for them. What and do you mean a service then, a support group? Or, yeah, or sometimes something? it's a support group, sometimes it's an yep. employment service, sometimes it's a housing service, depends on where you are in the country. Um, and, you know, for example, one of the reasons why we do a lot of work on welfare benefits, which you might not necessarily think is a big issue for a mental health charity, is because... Yeah, I went through a whole phase of going to local mines, sitting down with people, and, and somebody sitting next to me will get out a letter saying, I've just had this letter from the DWP. Uh, I don't understand it. It's making me feel really anxious. So those are things that we pick up quicker because our kind of our, our folk on the ground are able to say this is the issue that, that, that that's affecting them. We get that before the national data comes I up. I think we see that as well in recent data about consumer debt. Debt is a really, uh, absolutely a really big issue and uh, and the anxiety that that's create, that creates for people, how people manage and handle debt, how they handle, um, how, how sub- providers handle that relationship. So going back to what, what Paul was saying, those conversations that take place between somebody who's in distress and somebody who's in this particular case, in power, uh, is such an important conversation to, to get right. If you get it wrong, from the point of view of somebody with a mental health problem, uh, you know, that can have you know, really terrible consequences. Yeah. And with the federated structure then, so I don't doubt that everyone in mind and within the mind family is, is there and they want to help uh, and so on. How do you as the leader, you know, at the top, what surprised me for the size and the mm. scale and the number of mm. people involved, I think you've said basically there's about 6,000 people yeah. in, in total. How do you make sure that you're getting that same level of quality of support, you know, right down at the other end of the pipe? So uh, this is where we borrow from, um, you know, I think we've borrowed the best of business in terms of uh, making sure that we we create systems that allow people to be able to both people outside the system to tell us what they experience, so complaint systems and those those kinds of approaches, but also internal systems that tell us about the quality of the service that's being provided. Now, outcomes for people with mental health problems are sometimes quite easy to measure. So, you know, if we help somebody get a job, then that's quite a clear outcome. Uh, but an outcome in terms of their recovery is often quite, is a little bit harder to measure. So we use a whole set of different indicators depending on the service to understand where people are, but we're also in the business of kind of national change, attitudinal change, policy change. Uh, And so we have a different set of indicators to show the progress that we're making in terms of public attitudes and others uh, about about the issue, as well as people's perceptions of us. Just talking again, Paul Geddes, about seeing the company in action, seeing you do your work. I mean, I remember a couple of years ago, floods all across the north, the Lake District and, uh, you know, and so on, and and people needed help. I mean, in that situation, as as a CEO, do you think you get the wellies on and I've got to see this 
this at the front line? Or do you think sometimes if the CEO turns up in, in that sort of situation, it can be misconstrued? So what, what did you do? Yeah, I mean, I think um, but I did get my wellies on and, and go up there because that highlights what we do. And our people on the ground there appreciate the moral support. I think there's always clearly a danger of kind of tokenism and being seen to exploit, you know, a, a PR opportunity. But that, you know, my focus was to see them. And while I was there, I did an interview. But, you know, I, I was up to see to see them. I think connecting to the to the proper front line is 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 a hard thing as you get to a bigger organisation and you know we're about eleven thousand people and obviously with eleven thousand people you need layers because otherwise you can't logistically manage it but I think you have to really work hard on making sure the layers um, don't stand in the way of the two-way conversation between the front line and and that's in both directions so I think layers can sometimes filter a message from the top and put spin on it and by the time it's it's six layers six levels down it's something quite different like Chinese whispers similarly messages from the front can also get I think filtered on the way up so we kind of we've 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 uh, kind of almost like a works council put in, got elected employee representative bodies which means I sit down every quarter for a few hours with people from the front line and obviously, there's a bit of formality initially, but the objective is that they relax to the point they can kind of say, listen, Paul, you might think that, or you might think this thing we've rolled out is works, or you might think that people think that, but really, actually, the, the, you know, what people are worried about is this, or, or, or this, this isn't going as well as you think, or people are worried about this. And I find that a really great forum to do it. I also, um, you know, the internet and Yammer and, and you know, social media and the stuff which we do, I, and Q&A sessions, I judge the success of of that is to have really challenging questions when my when we floated and my pay was first put out there there were a few questions about you know why is Paul paid like that and 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 that for me was a great cultural symptom of you know a culture where everything is open to question if, if I do a Q&A session and someone doesn't say well my computers you know it's been hard to log on or my computers uh, my systems aren't great I would worry because you know we're working on new systems uh, people's systems aren't as good as the ones they have at home therefore if in 100 people no one raised that then they're not saying what's on their minds so so I think you have to work really hard in a bigger organization to hear and to be yep. heard. Yeah, and we know that connects to uh, how people's sense of well-being, their relationship with lead with their leaders, however big or distant those people might feel, their connection with senior leadership is really important mm. to their own well-being as a as a as an employee. And to go back to what Paul yeah. was saying, their their motivation for that is uh, you're more motivated if you're more engaged. If you're more engaged, your well-being is probably likely to be more positive. Well, m- mental health actually is is a very totemic issue for us, and we we for for me that we chosen it as, a, as one of our core things and we work we work closely with mind and for me it was you know you, the, the symptom was we had you know some attempted suicides um which i think any company of eleven thousand people given the numbers is you're likely to sure. see i don't think they were directly caused by work but those people were at work and if they were in a climate where they could talk about their problems it mattered a lot to me that actually mm-hmm. you know that 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 was something which we listened to and did something about and actually in 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 all the stuff that we've done to say it's a completely legitimate conversation to have at work to talk about people's mental health not only was good on mental health it was a, had a, a wider thing which is you can bring all yourself to work one of the most depressing thing i always thought was people coming through the revolving doors on a monday morning and all the personality draining out of people yeah you know it's almost like a reverse superman you know they kind of clark <laughs> kent comes superman goes in on a monday morning and clark kent comes out so so that it's been a quite a totemic issue which has changed the culture of the organization and, and removed some hierarchy as well but 
but I've often thought, you know, with with um, you know, you look at say the annual results of, of mining companies, profits, turnover, that sort of thing, and then there's always that line. Oh, and last year only one person died in our mines, or mm. only two people died in our mines. And I think, well, you know, wh- wh- why are you using the word only? This is this is a you know far more people than should. And you, I wonder. If, if you're running an organisation where, where people are dying on your watch, I mean, there can't be anything worse for a leader, surely? Yeah, I mean, I think you have to take a, a sense. Cl- clearly, if there was an instance that, you know, the mental health issue was totally linked to a ro- to, to, their, to their job, sure. that, I think that's a different kettle of fish with, you know, total immediacy and ownership and things you have to do to the consequences of that. But they're at work a lot. And if work is a place where they can talk to colleagues, we have mental health first aiders now that pick stuff up and are just a safe place to go. And not only mental health being picked up in that climate, but actually people think they can talk about many more things going on in their lives than they would otherwise do. And I think that's got to be a really healthy thing. Yeah, Paul Farmer, uh, I want to mention that you talked a little while ago about the importance of mental health for charity leaders. So Mm -hmm. I guess that relates to leaders across the piece. I mean, do you think, you know, that that CEOs can find it tough up there? I think charity leaders are leaders and they they have a, a very interesting set of responsibilities we have different structures uh, you know kind of voluntary board we have uh, you know different different sets of levers uh, and and demands in place uh, I, I think it can be incredibly tough uh, being well, being a senior leader in any organization is incredibly tough but in an insider charity I think there's sometimes an expectation that you are completely Teflon that you it, despite the fact that you work in a in a space where there you know almost the very nature of the issues that you're working in is dist- you know distress is a if you're just chief executive of crisis or the Red Cross, somehow your leaders are even more Superman Teflon than business leaders. We're just ordinary people, same as anything else. So you've got to look, you have, the key here is three things. You've got to look after your own, think about your own resilience and not try to be Superman. Secondly, you've got to think about uh, where you get your own help and support, and sometimes that uh, that often needs to be outside your organisation. You need to go to a safe place, I think, where you feel you're you can just be yourself and and be away because people's perceptions of you are you know can, can have an impact. But thirdly, I think you have to try to be yourself to your people, and you know if things are not great, then you have to be open about that and if something's going on in your life you have to be as open as you feel Mm. is possible um my as it happens at the moment my wife is currently going through cancer treatment and so i've talked about that a little bit with my team because i think it's really important that they understand what's happening to me away from the day job and that's people have been fantastically supportive of course because Mm. that's exactly what you expect and then if I didn't, I can't really imagine not having told people about that. And I think that's what we all have to try to do. Mm. Yeah. And to wind back the clock, when you when you came in, I think in 2006, mm. you, you've said in interviews before there was, a, there was a, a real sense of nervousness. I'm sure a lot of leaders get this. You'd never been a CEO before. So there was almost a sort of you're walking into the building thinking, crikey, I, I'm going to be rumbled here. You just sort of learn on the job then or, or how, how does it work? Uh, I, I think you st- I think lots of leaders I certainly felt uh, it started off with a massive kind of imposter syndrome uh, you know why why was I here um, something happened very early on when I arrived at, at Mind and people were asking me for a decision on something and I kind of immediately felt like I needed to just look behind me and then I realised that no no they were actually asking me and I was <laughs> making that decision and that was that moment when you kind of think oh yes that's what this chief exec thing is all about yeah. different people learn in different ways I try to take a 
a very open way to learning. I learn from trying things and, and experience, and I try to kind of learn in that way. I know a lot of people take like structured learning. Mm. Lots of people like men. I have a mentor who is from the business sector, nothing to do with charities at all, and he's been hugely helpful in helping me to think about some of the challenges I face in a through a different lens. I was going to come on to mentors, but uh, Paul Geddes, um, uh, what's the expression? Imposter syndrome. Does he, do you recognise that? Um, yeah, a bit. I mean, I've I've kind of been kind of working up to this just by you know my path has been kind of running increasingly independent units, but I certainly completely empathise with the kind of the loneliness bit. So really, I think that's when mentors come in, and I also think people um, in other companies, you know, when you speak to another CEO in a different sector, it's, you, you, there's a real empathy because you kind of you 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 can associate with some of the challenges. So actually having some people you're safe with that you can let off steam a little bit with and, and talk about anything, be they other CEOs or people in other industries or mentors, I think that's hugely important because if you start doing that with your own team, that's not you know what a boss should be doing. I think with, sure. with some of the team because there is. I mean to 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 drill a little bit into your into your history. I mean there is, the, this moment at which you took over. RBS Insurance, which became Direct Line Group. I mean, you were um, you you have some some things to thank Fred Goodwin for, which not a lot of people can say. But at RBS, he um, plucked you from sort of Comet and Argos. You'd been marketing, and you came in. There was that path where you know people with great marketing skills were needed in in retail banking, and I think he almost saw the the opposite of himself in you. Maybe I mean, um, you know, open, transparent, friendly, accountable. Maybe I'm being too too unfair, but still, when you when you have that difference of personality, you can be very close to the workforce, but you're still taking some pretty tough decisions. I mean, you 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 had to reduce a lot of cost to get this business into shape, and that was a lot of a lot of jobs. You know, I won't say much about Fred, other than you know, I never directly worked for him, but he was always you know he was always very fair with me. Um, but clearly, there are some lessons of what went on that when you're a CEO, you can learn from some of the things which obviously didn't work out for him, and, and were aspects of how he ran the business that I'm sure he'd be reflective of, but certainly you wouldn't want to repeat. Um, um, so, so many of the things we've done at Direct Line are reversing some of the things that were part of uh, RBS at the time, which I'm, I know also RBS now is different to how it was sure. then, and, and, learn, and learn those lessons. I suppose I'm saying that. I, I suppose the question was: you you have to bring the staff with you, but at the same time, you're making very tough decisions. The, the toughest thing I think anyone has to do is to make people redundant. If you ever have a day where that's anything other than something you so, search your soul on, it's 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 a horrible. It's a horrible thing because it's people's lives that and livelihoods and professional esteem and all of that goes with yep. it. I think, therefore, you have to do it for the right reasons. You have to authentically you have to treat people well. We were in a situation which we listen. We couldn't have been an investable business that had its own future unless we got our cost under control. Sure. We had too many buildings. So I think what we did well was we were totally clear with people why we had to do it. We were then totally clear how we were going to do it. We could have done it in a penny-pinching way and, and cut people's redundancy terms. We could have had a secret plan like Mr. Burns in The Simpsons and not told people about it. I had a total problem with that. If I knew we were going to be closing a site in three years and people were you know, about to get married or have a mortgage or, or any of those things, and I knew more about their future than they did, I found I had a total problem with that. But mm. it's never a nice process. Sure. But it kind of needs to be done because the dangers of not doing it is you imperil 
the, you know, the, the jobs of 10,000 people. It was out of sense of care that we did it rather than the sense of, uh, of the opposite. Mm. Paul Farmer, just to talk a little bit about training, about, you know, getting uh, yourself into the, the, the sort of CEO role. I mean, you are, uh, you spent the best part of 30 years in this world, sort of mental health. And I'm going to skip the Clerkenwell heritage job. But 1990, you came in, it was a comms role at, at the Samaritans. So you, you obviously, you know the world better than most. You have that comms background, which I think is great when you, you're out there and campaigning and so on. But what were the other things you had to do to turn yourself into CEO? You talked about mentorship. Yeah, I think, I suppose my career has been, you're absolutely right, has been inside not just the charity sector, but a particular kind of subsector of the charity sector inside mental health charities. So the advantage with that was that I, I, knew, I knew a lot about the content. Uh, but knowing about the content and knowing about the, being a CEO are two very different things. So in a sense, when I arrived at Mind, I knew that I had to, I wouldn't have to work up my knowledge about the content, but I did have to work up my understanding about being a chief executive. And I've worked in a senior man- very good senior management team at Rethink Mental Illness. I think I'd worked out, broadly speaking, what the job was about. But it's very different when you're doing it yourself. So I found a business mentor as a marvellous organisation called the Kilfinnan Group that matches challenges charity leaders and business leaders. So I was able to access support from a fabulous guy called David Butter, who I'm still, he's still my mentor, 12, 12 years on, he's still, I'm still with him. And what does that look like then? Do you do you have a cup of tea every every few months or and, and yeah, talk exactly. about ideas Ex- or something? Exactly. Uh, we get together from time to time, cup of tea or, or lunch or whatever, and I'll have the issues that I don't, I suppose just in a way, these are the issues, at this point now, these are the issues that I'm not yet ready to talk to my board about, I'm not yet ready to talk to my senior team about. And that's the kind of loneliness of the chief executive. Very interesting. That kind of sandwich space that you find yourself in. So he is the sort of the pressure valve, if you like. Exactly. He's the pressure valve. These are mainly about, for me, they're mainly about where are we trying to go, what's the direction of the organisation, and also how are we responding to our biggest challenges. Do you you recognise that? Paul, do someone, I mean, you've, you've used mentors, I think, and do you still have people that you can sort of switch on the safety valve with? Yeah, definitely. And, and as I said, you know, we are all massively improvable. And I, um, thing one and two, you just need to get some advice from people that don't have a vested interest or, or aren't involved in directly in that situation. When I was trying to convince uh, people that I was worthy of being a standalone CEO of a listed company, that's a different set of requirements. And I set myself the task of getting all of that stuff done and I had a therefore mentors formed a part of that plan. There's a company called uh, CMI that I used, and um, I got uh, Sir Roger Carr and Sir Christopher Hogg were my two mentors at that stage, and they've been they were fantastic. And to to elaborate, these are sort of two veterans of British industry, you know, uh, absolutely, you know, absolutely. They've seen it and t- done it. You know, t- titans that have you know at least twenty years more experience, been been around the loop. But are there in that moment just for you to hear what your stuff is and to give their wise advice? I think they quite enjoy it as well because they're interested in business and they can probably recall the time of their careers. They were where you yeah. sat and probably there's some yeah. fond memories. But uh, but they've just got wisdom, experience um, and independence. The other thing I do now is, is actually rather than having to necessarily pay for a mentoring scheme is to actually just find people that know somebody that you can take out for lunch three or four times a year and that's very it's very easy right you just say to somebody and people do that to me i mentor quite a lot of people you know if a bright young thing comes and says paul can i buy you lunch and chat about myself i i always say yes right because why wouldn't i it's a not it's not really the free lunch but it's the it's the uh you know just talking about someone's career is just always a, a pleasurable thing so that's one thing the other thing is i'm in a, in a scheme um where ceos partner with permanent secretary level civil servants 
And I found that amazing. I mean, to go in, spending a day in the civil service and seeing the challenges they face. And then I've struck up then a relationship with that person. I can't, I won't name them. Um, and, and then we kind of go and have a drink in the pub. And again, many of the same issues, you know, uh, it's, it's all the same stuff. I'm on the Channel 4 board. Well, I, Many I, of the same things are the same issues. So Yeah, and I would say, I mean, you know, the, this is not video, but it's to, to see you two nodding along with each other, I think there is, you know, I don't think the UK is very good at necessarily getting public sector, private sector sort of sharing ideas. But but really, you know, if you're running a big organisation, there's so much commonality, isn't there, Paul? I, well, I, I think, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a bunch of people. I, I was until recently chair of Akiva, the chief executive of voluntary organisation. So they, they kind of, one of the their roles is almost to bring peer leaders together and and create essentially support networks and Paul's absolutely right uh, I think I think there's a lot that we can learn in the voluntary sector from private sector leaders and from public sector leaders many of the challenges are fundamentally very similar it's about effective use of resources how do we support our people to be the best people they can possibly be how do we hold the vision and the purpose of our organizations as we as we go forward so the the peer networks i think are hugely important and there've been some brilliant people inside the charity sector who've been who are lead, great leaders in charity sector who've been peers for me but i think we could the more we can build those networks across sectors the better better it'll be for society actually and, and paul the, the uh, interesting you had that role across mm. the charity industry so many questions being asked of charities over the last couple of years in terms of trust and people you know who people are giving their their money to but also governance at the top yeah. do you think the charity sector is is in better shape now or there's still uh, i mean looking at looking at numbers of of income i mean these are big businesses is is the governance and leadership where it should be yeah, I, th- I think the charity sector had its wake-up call in the same way as different parts of our society have had their own wake-up calls, whether it's MPs' expenses or some of the, the private sector stories of previous years. You know, we've had the kind of spotlight of transparency shone upon us, and in some places we've been found wanting. And uh, I think the effect of that has been to uh, for for, uh, for for charities, uh, large and small, actually, to think about the quality of their governance, think about the the nature of the transparency that they need to have to their supporters and their beneficiaries. Um, I, I think I think the sector generally is on a bit of a learning journey around that. But broadly speaking, you know, there are some very smart people running leading boards in charities. We often see see people coming in from the corporate sector to take play a role in charity boards. I think that's hugely helpful. Our own new chair, Stevie Spring, comes from that corporate background. But we also have people on that board who are heart, heart and soul people. And that's hugely important too, so that you're absolutely embedded in your values. Uh, you know, you bring business skills, but passion for the cause. Uh, you know, I think I think we've one of the things as leaders we've had to learn is I think we've learned a lot more about risk. How do you think about reputation management? How do you think about issues in a, in, in in those ways? And and how do you talk about them? Because I think most people just simply expect charity leaders to be permanently bouncy and enthusiastic about their cause and challenging of government and crusaders. Yeah. But we also have to be as credible on 
um, you know, on our risk profile, on our story about um, a- a- accountability, on financial accountability yeah. and people accountability. But that must be a balance. That's a balance on the board, but also a balance in your mind, if you like. I mean, right at the front of your website, it's about making sure everyone that wants it gets compassion and hope yeah. and, and so on. But you've also got to, you know, I think £48 million of, of income last year from all these people that want to support you. You have to have your commercial head on as well. And, and our, you know, our, our organisation only exists because of the support of a very wide yep. range of donors, whether it's individuals who run the marathon for us, corporate supporters, institutional supporters as well. We have 160 charity shops. We're managing a portfolio of income generation and our accountability is to them as well as to our beneficiaries. Now, you know, where you get that right is if you're able to communicate purpose and vision, but you're also able to communicate the difference that you're making to people's lives. That's why people come to us. The individuals come to us because they want, they need help and support. Uh, Organisations will fund us because they believe we're making a difference. We have to be absolutely clear to our mission and our purpose and be talking against that at every single point in our in our communication and approach. I think that talks to how your your approach, Paul, when you've had to make the, the the tough decisions. One thing I'd like to ask you is, you know, leaders come from, you know, all backgrounds. People can work their way up uh, over years. Such a trend for people with marketing backgrounds to 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 get the, the CEO's job. And um, what do you make of that? And there's a number of your peers, this sort of Procter & Gamble hothouse. And you're all you were selling shampoo one day and then sort of 20, 30 years later, you're, you're sort of leading some of Britain's biggest companies. Yeah, I mean, I still think um, we're in the minority as kind of ex-marketeers. I think it's 10 of the FTSE 100, I think, are in the hands of people that broadly call themselves marketeers. And I think there are some things that map over quite well. You know, a lot of the job of a CEO is communication. Another key job is understanding the market and the customer. You know, ultimately, you know, the, the CEO is kind of the chief marketeer in that if you think about marketing, it was all, all of the P's, the classic thing. Yep. The CEO owns all of the P's. So so having someone whose skill set is to, is, to, is to weigh up all the priorities in favor of what the customer cares about is a kind of good skill set. But obviously, we, we're not... You know, there are many things a marketer doesn't inherently know how to do and or things that, that may pull in different directions. That means that you have to, I think, deliberately as a, C, as a marketeer go, okay, here's the stuff which people would not expect of a marketeer or a marketer wouldn't know how to do. And you then need to work assiduously about making sure that you can convince people that you can do the other stuff. And, you know, I, I probably spent several years not talking about marketing at all because that wasn't the chief challenge of the business. And I also needed to show people that I could do the, do the rest of it. P&G back in the day was a really unusual place in that it gave early responsibility to people. So it kind of gave 23, 24-year-olds brands and factories and if they had an idea, they'd pretty much say, go and do it. Now, I think today that was great for the individuals, whether it was a great business model, because what it meant is that every market had different plans and products and, and so it was very, it's a bit inefficient. I think now that's probably not the way they run the business. But I think giving young people, I think if you do give them early responsibility, normally reward you actually and and then they can grow much quicker than most people allow and i think that's something which i think we all have to take into our own businesses which is remembering back that actually in your mid-20s if you're given some good training in a good situation it's amazing what you could do if people gave you that early uh, uh, those early breaks and that early confidence yeah, the early thing and um i'm wondering we've talked about the successes and and sort of almost inside your head if you like either of you have has there been something that's that's you know, gone wrong within, you know, within mind or within direct line that you would willingly admit to that you could have done better, you think, looking back over 10 or 13 years? Uh, I mean, a whole host of things. I think it'd be very weird if you, if you, you know, if you're always on the right side of things. I think generally, when you look back over a long period of time, 
always people say you should have gone harder and faster <laughs> with stuff, right? Because yeah. you know you kind of knew the thing to do, and 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 there's no reason to delay and get on with stuff. And then probably people, you know, for me, if you're a CEO, if you've got a great team and you've got a good strategy, that's pretty much your job, most of your job done, right? And so I think, you know, again, one of the generic things people say is, is you know, just relentlessly making sure you've got the, you know, the very best people and they're, 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 they're giving their best. And again, sometimes you, you, you know, you, you take some time and say, is this going to work out? And maybe you give too much time. So I think, I think generally pace is a really important thing. And, and you know, as you, as you look in the jobs, that's one of the things you regret. And then obviously you make lots of tactical and, you know, mistakes and IT projects overrun or take too much money. Well, everyone gets IT projects wrong. It's not just you. That's a table stake. Yes. I yeah. I, I mean, I, I'd, uh, you know, I'd completely agree agree you know when you look back at things that didn't work out you always regret the things you regret are where we didn't just get it right for that individual person and and it's it's always a source of great you know regret when that doesn't work for something doesn't work out for an individual person you think oh that we could have got that better I completely agree with the point about pace um that you know it's that question about you know you want to be a brave and a bold leader but when somebody comes up to you and says that was very brave maybe you've gone too far (laughs) (laughs) that's the wrong brave (laughs) exactly (laughs) but equally you know your your job is to take that is sometimes to take that step when others are, are not sure that's the right thing to do and you know one of the things I had to do was walk away from a, a, a DWP group with you know which is ministerially commissioned that was a tough call to make because it was a personal decision I had to walk away because I just felt we were being compromised in that in that position. But I knew that came with a risk of alienating government to a very important kind of, you know, we want to influence governments. And so we were alienating them by walking away. But it was absolutely the, it's the right thing to do, but it was a tough thing to do. So I think there's a fine line. There's always a fine line between being brave and bold and being, oh, that was brave, wasn't it? Absolutely. With the so it's being, the, it really diff- difficult to convey, but it's all in the eyebrows, Paul. Ex- as yes, it's <laughs> very good for Well, podcast. look, um, thank you to both of you, Paul Farmer and Paul Geddes, for a great conversation conversation and uh, sharing some thoughts on um, how you lead. Brilliant. Thank, Thank you. you. And that was Paul Farmer, the chief executive of mental health charity Mind, and Paul Geddes, the CEO of Direct Line, the insurance group. Thanks for listening to season one of Leading with me, James Ashton. These podcasts are being released weekly. Please subscribe so you don't miss the latest one. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please follow us on Twitter at LeadingPod and rate and review.